0: Well, this morning, I'm going to be preaching to you a sermon I've entitled, He Calls Us Friends. He Calls Us Friends, John chapter 15, verses 12 through 17. Here's what Jesus says there on that night before he was taken, verse 15. I'll start in verse 12, rather. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Father, thank you for the opportunity to read this text of Scripture and to elaborate on it here in our message together. We pray that you would show us what it means, that you would call us friends. What a privilege it is to be considered a friend of God. And so I pray as we look at this passage and as we study the words of Jesus, I pray that it would encourage us today and that it would enlighten us today to help our thinking, uh, to, to think upon you and the relationship we have with you and how you describe that relationship here in your word. And so thank you for the time to be together this morning. Bless this time, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in January of 2010, I started my doctorate of ministry program at the Master's Seminary, I must admit, I was a little bit intimidated as I'd been out of uh, school for a few years serving as a youth pastor at a church in Texas. And to kind of go back to seminary for doctoral work can be a little bit intimidating. And so I was accepted into the program. I was happy to meet there for our first day of class. And in that boardroom in the Master's Seminary, right above the library on our first day of class, I remember uh, showing up and there was Dr. Mayhew who was the vice president of the seminary at the time. There was Dr. Busnitz, who was the academic dean. There was Dr. Barrick, who sang for us this morning, who was the chairman of the Old Testament department as well as the head of the PhD program. There was Dr. Crisani, that many of you know, who's a gentleman and a scholar. There was Dr. Essex, who was my Bible professor. And I thought to myself, what am I doing in this room with all of these incredibly smart men, godly men who had been my professors and my mentors. And then something very strange happened. They looked at our doctoral cohort and said something like, as doctoral candidates, you are no longer just our students, you are our colleagues. And so now we invite you to call us by our first names. We kind of look around at each other, like, are they kidding? I mean, am I really supposed to call Dr. Mayhew Richard? Am I supposed to call Dr. Buznitz Irv? Am I supposed to call Dr. Barrick, who knows like 10 languages, Bill? <laughs> and so I just couldn't do it. No matter how much they said that we should do, I'm like, there's just no way I can call these esteemed men by their first names. It wasn't until about four years later when I became the pastor of this church that I remember Dr. Barrick just saying to me at one point, say, hey, Adam, I really would prefer it if you would just call me Bill. I remember him saying something like, we're friends now. You can just call me by my first name. You know what? It's just hard to accept that sometimes, isn't it? Still is hard for me to even say that about Dr. Barrick, who I do call on occasion Bill. (laughs) But the Bible calls those who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ by many names. He, the, the Bible refers to us as Christians as many different names in the Bible. There's names like believers, Beloved of God, beloved brethren, the called, children of God, children of promise, children of light, sons of the resurrection, Christians, disciples, the elect, the godly, heirs of God, heirs of promise, heirs of salvation, the righteous lights in the world, living stones, members of the body of Christ, a people of God, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a royal nation, a people of God's own possession, the salt of the earth, slaves of Christ, slaves of righteousness, vessels of honor, vessels. Of mercy and saints. That's no less than 30 names that refers to the believer. And while each one of those names is incredible in describing our relationship with God and helping us understand our identity, I might be willing to trade them all in for this one name that we read about this morning that Jesus says, I have called you friend. To be a friend of the Lord Jesus Christ in some way is more intimate and more meaningful to me as a believer than all of those other titles put together. You see, a friend is someone that you know well, so well that you know all of their strengths and all of their weaknesses, and you love them any way. A friend is a person who will encourage you who will always be there for you, who will pray for you. A friend will not listen to negative talk about you. A friend will not ever disown you or will never go against you. They will always be someone who is closer than a brother. You have a friend in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have a friend who says that he will never abandon you and that he loves you anyway, and his name is Jesus. What a special thing to think about this morning. I have called you friends. He's a friend to the widow, a friend to the orphan. He's a friend to the needy. He's a friend to the outcast. He's a friend on your good days, and he remains your friend on the bad days. Jesus is a friend who is committed to you no matter what. He will always be there. He's a friend who cares enough for you to pull you out of the ditch. He's a friend who loves you when you're unlovely. He pursues you when you're all alone. He's a friend like no other. Are you a friend of Jesus today? Do you know him like this today? Does he really call you his friend? Well, in this passage of John 12, or excuse me, John 15, verses 12 through 15, we learn three characteristics of the friends of Jesus. Again, three attributes that would describe you if you're a friend of Jesus today. And the first one is there in your outline for you: that friends of Jesus are friends who are to love one another. If you're a friend of Jesus, he describes you as someone who will love one another. Look at verses 12 and 13. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Now, a few months ago, when we looked at John 14, 15, if you'll glance back, John 14, 15, where Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And in that particular sermon, I gave you no less than 50 imperatives or commands that Jesus gives us in the New Testament. Things like, follow me, and let your light shine, and lay up your treasures in heaven, and judge not, and deny yourself, and love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it's important for us as believers to remember that Jesus loves us enough to save us, and he loves us enough to sanctify us. And Jesus sanctifies us through his word, and he gives us his commandments, and he gives us his power to obey his commandments as we're being conformed more and more into the image of Christ day by day. And in John 13, verse 34, you might remember that Jesus says, A new commandment I give you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. And to love one another means that you care for one another, that you are kind with one another, that you're willing to serve one another. In many ways, selfishness is the opposite of love. And when you are more focused on doing what is best for you, then you're loving yourself. But when you're more focused on blessing or encouraging others, then you are loving them. And this is how Christians ought to be. We ought to be loving, and we're commanded by Christ to love and to serve one another. And the idea of loving is not just a one-time thing. It's not just something you do once on any given day. But it's an ongoing thing. We're to abide in his love and we're to be tapped into the vine so that we can keep loving. You first have been filled up with Christ's love and then you're to pour out that same love to others. And you can pour it out in your family. And we would love for you to pour out that kind of love in this church. And we want to pour out that kind of love in our community. Jesus said in John 15 10, if you keep my commandments, you abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. You are to remain in the love of Christ, and the way to remain or continue in the love of Christ is by keeping his commandments, and if we're not loving like he's called us to love, then we're not abiding like he invites us to abide. And Paul communicates the importance of obeying Christ's command to love in Romans thirteen eight, He says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment, are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So we shouldn't owe anyone anything, that passage out of Romans 13 says, except love. And when we are loving each other, we are fulfilling the law of Christ. Remember, Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love God, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor. And so here in Romans 13, Paul also connects loving one another with the moral law. The sixth commandment is thou shalt not murder, It's mentioned here. The seventh commandment is thou shalt not commit adultery, it's mentioned here. The eighth commandment is thou shalt not steal, it's mentioned here. The tenth commandment is thou shalt not covet, it's mentioned here. And what this text says is that when you keep those moral commands of God, that is one way that you're implementing your love for God and your love for one another. To commit any of these moral sins is to not love your neighbor because you are actually sinning against them. And when you obey God's word, not only are you loving him, but you are loving your neighbor, and the two go hand in hand. And so Jesus, in this passage of John 15, 12, is saying to us again, this is my commandment, that you love one another. It's not optional. It's not something you do only when you feel like it. It's something that he commands. In fact, your next blank there says Jesus commands that we love others as he has also loved us. So he commands that we love others just like he loved us. He, he gives us that commandment and then he makes sure that we understand what that commandment is and how it is that we're to obey it. In verse 12 again, the second part of it says, "This is my commandment." That's the first part. The second part is that you love one another as I have loved you. We've talked a little bit about how much Jesus Loves us, how much the Father loves us as much as the Father loves the Son. That's how much the Son loves us with this eternal love, with this sacrificial love, with a love that washes our feet, with a love that serves, with a love that edifies, with a love that never fails, with a love that always points us to God. This kind of love that Jesus shows to us is a love that is pure, it's a love that truly cares, it's a love that is contagious. And we are to look to Christ's love and to meditate on Christ's love. And then we're to implement Christ's love as we now love others. You see the progression? As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Then he tells us to remain in his love so that we can have joy. And now he's telling us, now I want you to go love others just like I've loved you. Which is like the Father has loved me. And this is a commandment. It's not just some wishy-washy, emotional, external uh, thing. This is an internal conviction. This is the gospel on display through your life. This is so important. This impacted the Apostle John to the deepest degree that he writes about it again and again and again. In First John, which is his epistle, in fact, turn with me towards the end of your Bible, right before you get to Revelation, and you'll see First, Second, and Third John, and then of course Jude. But in First John, chapter two, look at a couple of these passages because what Jesus said mattered to John, and it mattered so much to him that it just kept coming out of his mouth. And in First John, chapter two, verse nine and ten, John writes this: Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. So if you say that you're in the light, verses 9 and 10, if you say you're in the light, then you cannot hate your brother. He's saying those two things are opposed to each other. If you say, I'm a Christian, and I'm in the light, And I've been enlightened, and I know who God is, and you cannot hate your brother. And you're sitting out there, and you're saying, come on, Adam, no Christian is ever going to hate somebody. We know we're not supposed to do that. And then you skip right over it as if this verse doesn't apply to you because you think that you're not committing the sin of hate. Not so soon. That word hate in the Greek lexicon also means to disregard. To disregard means to ignore, or to take no notice of, or to pay no attention to. That's what can sometimes happen in a marriage. I know that you would never say, I hate my spouse. You would rather say, like, I'm just not talking to them right now. I ain't talking to them right now. They done made me mad. And I'm not about to be sweet and loving and kind to them in this moment. You won't say, I hate them. Because you can't say that. You know you've committed the cardinal sin, but you're just going to ignore them. I'm saying this applies to you. You can't say, I'm walking in the light. I love the light. Thankful for the light, but I'm not talking to my spouse till I feel like it. You cannot function in that way and honor God. That is not keeping the commandment to love one another, and it happens in marriages. And it happens between parents and children all the time that you ignore them and you stop calling them and you stop talking to them. It happens to friends in church where they begin to diss one another because they're mad at them. It happens to Christian schoolmates at a Christian school where they're like, well, I don't like that person anymore. not going to say I hate them because I can't say that, but I just don't like them. And you start to avoid them at all costs. Listen to me this morning. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. I want to ask you this morning, are you really loving your brother? Are you really loving your sister? Are you abiding in the light when it comes to your relationships with others? Look at 1 John chapter 3, writes more about it in verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, a lot of us would read that passage and be like, well, I'm not going to be practicing unrighteousness because that's just living like the world. But you forget about the very end of verse 10 who says, hey, you're also a child of the devil if, if what? If you're not loving your brother, this verse is simply saying that Christians love each other. They love holiness and they love purity and they love Christ, but they also love each other. And the children of the devil do not. The way that you can tell the difference between a child of God and a child of the devil, according to this verse, is by examining not only how they love righteousness, but how they love each other. Maybe you're here today and you're like, well, I love righteousness and I'm pursuing purity and I'm not cheating on my spouse and I'm not getting drunk and I'm not looking at pornography and I'm not doing this. But are you loving your brother? Are you really loving your sister? Can you say the two of us are one? First John chapter three, look down at verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. One of the ways that you can have assurance of your salvation is that you love each other. And if you love your brothers and your sisters in Christ, then you can have greater assurance that you have passed from death to life. But whoever does not abide in love, according to this verse, they abide in death. Look at chapter 4, verse 7 through 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love are you starting to hear the conviction in john's heart as he's writing this over and over he says if you have been loved by god then we need to be loving one another and if we are loving others it shows that we have been born of god and that we know god and if you're not loving others it's as if he's saying then you don't know god because god is love that's what god does that's who he is and if you're not doing that daily and all throughout the day starting at home, spreading to your uh, neighbors and to Christians in this church and in the school you go to and the other organizations you're a part of, then how can you say you're a Christian? I mean, if you have been loved by God, we need to be loving one another in the same way. Look at chapter 4, verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and he hates his brother. Remember I said the word hate can also mean he disregards his brother. Or avoids his brother, or neglects his brother. If you say I love God and you hate your brother, he is a liar, for he does not love his brother whom he has. Uh, for For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. In other words, you saying. You say you love God who you can't see, but if you can't love your brother who you can see, then what in the world makes you think you love God if you're not loving this person? You cannot say that you love God and then ignore your brother. You cannot say that you love God and then disregard your brother or sister. You cannot say that you love God and then turn a blind eye to your neighbor. You know the kind of church I want? I want the kind of church where every person could approach every other person person and say, I love you. I want to have the kind of church where you could look at each other in the eye and say, I'm here for you. I want to have the kind of church where you could walk up to someone and say, I just want to say, I thank God for you. And I'm not sure if everybody can do that with everybody in this room. Do you? Do you think you could honestly do that with everybody in this room? Just say, you know, what, I love you. I just thank God for you. If you can, then do it. Do it. And if you can't, then guess where you need to look? The problem is not with God. And the problem is not with God's word. And the problem is not with that other person. The problem is with, who is it, kids? The problem is with Who? It's with you, isn't it? We talked about that for a long time yesterday out of James chapter 4. Why do we have quarrels, and why do we have fights? And we always want to say, oh, it's the other person, and they make me mad, and they did this to me, and I'm like, uh-uh, uh -uh." the Bible says the problem's you. Where's the problem? No, it's you. It's not me. (laughs) Come on. (laughs) That's what we got to do, though, right? We got to look in our own hearts and realize, oh, my goodness, oh, my goodness, I am not loving like Christ loved me. Do you think Jesus really has favorites in the kingdom? Then why do you have favorites at church? I'm going to start meddling in a minute, all right? I'm just getting started, people. So just pull up a chair and stay a while because we have got to learn to love this way. We have got to grow as a church in loving this way. It breaks my heart when I see people who I know say they love God, and they cannot love each other. That breaks my heart. It breaks the heart of God. I'm here to encourage you this morning. You can do it, because God is love. It's First John chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. You know, I read all of these passages, about loving 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 and we see a lot of emphasis on family here don't we whoever loves the father can love one another whoever loves him should love your brother like like we have the same father you get it i mean here in first john 5 1 it's like look whoever loves the father ought to love everyone who's been born of him like we have the same father we have the same brothers and sisters it, to me i mean I, I just sometimes think about to illustrate this the movie parent trap Who's seen the movie Parent Trap? Classic movie, everybody in the world has seen Parent Trap, and you know how that movie goes. In the movie, there's these two uh, sisters who are twins who were separated at birth, didn't know the other one existed. Somehow at camp, when they're like age 13, they meet each other, and they hate each other. And they play pranks on each other, and they pour honey on their feet, and the bears come in and lick it off. All these classic scenes of Parent Trap, and then what happens? Their punishment is they have to now be roommates together, and somehow they find out they're related to each other as sisters. And the moment that they realize we have the same father and we have the same mother, they become instant best friends. You know how that's, a, that's a, how it ought to be in our hearts when we realize like, oh, you know the father? Me too. Oh, you know the father? He saved you? He saved me too. Oh, you know the Father. He saved me too. We ought to be best friends. And as soon as I say that, everybody's like, "Well, we don't have to be best friends. We don't have to go golfing together and vacationing together, and we don't have to give gifts to each other when we don't want to." Like I, I get that. All right, I get that. I understand that you can't be besties with everybody. But instead of instead of being so quick to say like, "Well, we don't have to be best friends." Why don't you just start saying, you know what, I'm going to learn to love that person more. Just start right there. I'm just going to learn to love them more because we have the same father. And if we have the same father, once we realize that and we realize really what Jesus is teaching in his word and we realize what the apostle John is saying about how beloved we are and how much he loves us, that that ought to catapult us into a whole other level of love. I mean, you haven't even hit your highest gear yet because you're loving in your own strength. And you're loving based on your own preference. And you're not loving like Christ says we ought to love. We ought to love each other in the same way that he loves us. And you know what he does? You can go back to John 15, verse 13. He shows us how to love. This ain't just talk for Jesus. He shows us how it's to be done. Verse 13, the next blank says, Jesus shows us how to love. Verse 13, greater love has no one than this that someone laid down his life for his friends. In this particular verse, Jesus doesn't say, just keep talking about it. Jesus says, let's do something about it. I mean, there's no greater love than this, than Jesus Christ who lay down his life for you. I mean, somebody could buy you gifts. Somebody could take you on a dream vacation. Somebody could pay for your kids to go to college. Somebody could buy you a brand new car. Somebody could give you season passes to the Dodgers. Someone could offer you a free year at Chick-fil-A, but none of that shows them that you love them like it would be if you died for them. And if you were willing to die for them, they would know to an infinitely greater degree how deep your love for them really is. Remember, Jesus never commands us to do anything that he himself is not willing to do. And sometimes it is more caught than taught. Meaning by looking at his example, we almost learn more at times, maybe, than just listening to what he says. I mean, we all learn very well by example because examples are something we can see and something we can sometimes feel to a greater degree. Ephesians 5.2 says, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And so when you give up yourself for others, that is a fragrant aroma to God. It is pleasing to the Lord for us to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And the initial love of Christ was not for godly saints. It was for ungodly sinners. Do you understand that? It was while we're yet sinners that Christ died for us. So he didn't come and be like, oh, I love that one because that one's so lovely. He actually does the opposite. I love that one because they're so unlovely. They're so lost. They're so far beyond what could ever cause me to love them. I'm just going to love them anyway. While we were still weak, Romans 5, 6, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Romans 5, 8, he shows his love. He demonstrates his love toward us. And then while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Listen to me this morning. Jesus did not come for the well He came for the sick. Jesus came for those who were spiritually sick. He's the great physician of the soul. And when we were at our worst, he loved us with the best love imaginable. 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, that we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. That's what we ought to be doing, laying down our lives. This past summer, We took our family to Washington, D.C. We had a phenomenal vacation. One of the things I like to do when I'm in D.C. is go to the Vietnam Memorial because I have an uncle on the wall in Vietnam. My dad's little brother, his playmate growing up, went to Vietnam and became a helicopter pilot. And while he was flying in on a mission to save other soldiers who needed evacuation. His helicopter was shot down, and he died. Any soldier would understand that's the ultimate expression of love, that these soldiers, that you die for one another. No doubt, he had many friends that he was willing to give his life for in that situation, and this is the very definition of love. This is the essence of love. This is the epitome of love. It's all about self sacrifice. And Jesus laid down his life for us. And therefore, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and our sisters. And please note, it doesn't say when they're nice to you. And it doesn't say whenever they are deserving of it. And it doesn't say whenever you feel like it. This is simply, this is just a way of life. Jesus taught us how to love and he showed us how to love so that as we look to his love, we can then practice that same love. That's what God's called us to do. Look to Christ, look what he did, and then you just follow in that same vein. You know, a couple of years ago for Christmas, it's coming around. Our kids are already getting together some of their Christmas wish lists. I know that yours are too. And uh, so we bought that Nintendo Wii a couple of years ago and we got that game. It was called Just Dance. Have you seen this one, where you get out there on the Wii, and you got your little stick in your hand, and it's got like uh, songs that you can play, and the thing I like most about this particular game is that it shows you how to dance. Did you know some of us are better dancing than others, and it doesn't take long to play that game and know who's got it and who doesn't? (laughs) But what I like about it is it shows your figure up on the screen. You, know, you lift this leg up and put it down. and This hand goes up and this one goes down. And you just kind of watch the person on the screen and you try to match what they're doing. It's really hard, but it's a lot of fun. It's funner actually laughing at others <laughs> who are trying to do that, who can't because they ain't got no soul. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, I, think, I think what I like about it is just the reminder of that's like what Jesus is doing. He's doing the dance, the dance of love and service, and sacrifice, and we see him do something, we ought to just follow in his steps, and yes, it's hard, and yes, we fall down. That's why you can play the game again, and again, and again. You could keep getting better at it until you master it, and have people come over and watch you dance. You could do that if you wanted to, but the idea is like, I just love the 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 idea of imitating Christ, following his every move, seeing it in scripture, seeing it in his life, and so friends of Christ are those who love one another. Friends of Christ also obey Christ's commandments. Number two, you are to obey Christ's commandments. Your next blank says obedience and faith go hand in hand. I'm just going to skip through some of this because I feel like I've already explained this concept. So go ahead and go to B, obedience in the gospel go hand in hand. What's so interesting about that verse is that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8, it talks about that we need to obey the gospel. And so it, we're reminded that the gospel is something you believe in. God is holy. I'm a sinner. Christ died for me. But the gospel is also to be obeyed, which simply means that you obey the command to repent. And you obey the command to have faith in him. And you obey the commitment to dedicate your life to him. Now, none of your works ever save you only faith in him, but it's a faith that is catapulted into action. And so the gospel and um, love go hand in hand, and then see in your outline, obedience and love go hand in hand. If you really love Christ, you're going to obey him and not obey the world. I just skipped all of point two. How do you like that? You know why? Because I wanted to get to point three, because you're going to need it this week. You're going to need it this week while you're on vacation in Thanksgiving, because I want to teach you about number three here. You are to know that Jesus Christ calls you friends. Part of the motivation for loving in the way that God's called us to love, which you're going to need to be doing this week with God's help, is by saying that, man, I'm a friend of God. In fact, your next blank A here says, a friend is more than a servant. A friend is more than a servant. Let me read verse 14 and 15, and we'll spend the rest of our time on this last point, number three. But Jesus says, You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. A friend is more than a servant. Jesus says something profound in this passage that has never been said before. He says that he lays down his life for his friends. And he says that you are his friends. And he says, I no longer call you servants. Jesus said to the servants in John 2, 7, fill the jars with water. Jesus said in John 12, 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. For where I am there, he must be also. Jesus said in John thirteen sixteen, a servant is not greater than his master. So we get the service conversation. It's all throughout the Bible. And now he says something radical. He says something that should blow our minds. He says something that should transform the way you think and the way you relate to God. That's how powerful this passage is. It changes the way that you think about God and the way that you relate to God because he says you are now friends He calls us friends. If you're in Christ today, you are a friend of God, and he takes special care to say you're no longer a servant. You are now a friend. Now, for those of us who are here in our little bubble of Christianity in the world, appreciate the fact that it's been well taught to us that the word servant here is actually to be translated as the word slave. It's the word doulos in the original language. And we love that concept as well, don't we? We should, because it's a biblical concept. You are a slave of God. You are a servant of God. And I just want to remind you, the Bible never condones the concept of slavery in the way we would understand it today. The Bible never excuses slavery, and it never encourages anybody to capture a person against their will and to enslave them as a brutal taskmaster. What was done in Egypt was wrong. And what was done in the British Empire was wrong. And what was done in the southern states of America leading to the Civil War was wrong. When the Bible does speak of slavery, it does so in a positive light, referring to the concept Of a bond servant. A bond servant is a servant who would willingly offer himself as a servant to his master, oftentimes for life. And the master, in return, would offer protection and provision. And the master was to treat the servant. With honor and with respect. And the master was also to be courteous and to be kind. And even so, there were many menial tasks that a servant was to perform, such as washing his master's feet, preparing his master's food, and cleaning the master's clothes. And the Bible talks a lot about how Israel was God's servant and how even Christ took upon himself the form of a servant in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. Romans 6 talks about how as Christians, we used to be slaves to our sin and now we are slaves to God. Romans 6, 17 and 18, but thanks be to God that though you were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin and having become slaves of righteousness. So i'm saying there's a lot of good and value and i'm not changing that I'm, just reminding you as christ does today. There is more than one paradigm and there is more than one reference I already gave you 30 in the introduction of ways that god thinks about you 30 different ways And the way that i'm trying to teach you at this moment out of this passage is Jesus is saying hey for right now forget about being a servant Forget about being a slave right now I want you to know that you're a friend. I am now elevating you to the position of friend. That's what he wants us to think about. And to say to him, no, 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 Jesus, I'm just going to think of myself as a slave, would not be accepting what he's saying in this passage. In this passage, he's saying, hey, I want you to just for a moment push the slave thing aside. Does it exist? Yes. Is it healthy? Yes. Does it have a good place to be in the Bible and to teach us wonderful things about being slaves of Christ. Absolutely. But he's saying to us right now, don't think about it in that light because no longer do I call you servants, I call you friends. You say, which one is it? Are you a slave or a friend? I've already said that it's not saying it's one or the other, you're both, but in this passage, he wants you to think of yourself as a friend. So let's compare and contrast the two. A servant aspect is more of one who's someone who does what they're told to do without thinking. A servant is obligated to do what they do every day. They're not asked to think about it. The master doesn't have to share his estate with them, his plans with them. He doesn't have to tell them anything. He usually doesn't. He just says, go, and he goes, come, and he comes, and that's all he ever does with a servant. But with the friend, he does something far better. With a friend, he does something that's unimaginable. With a friend, he begins to reveal himself to that person with such intimacy and transparency and such disclosure that you're like, oh my goodness, not only is the king telling me what to do, he's telling me why to do it, how to do it, because I'm now his friend. We need to get this concept, people. We need to move further than just the slave idea, into this idea that Jesus gives us, I've called you a friend. During the Bible days, to be friends with the king was a big deal. Well-known commentator William Barclay writes this, quote, this phrase, being a friend of God, is lit up by a custom practice at the court's both of the Roman emperors and of kings in the Middle East. At these courts, there was a very select group called the friends of the king or the friends of the emperor. And at all times, they had access to the king. And even they had the right to come into his bedchamber at the beginning of the day. And he talked to them. Before he talked to his generals, his rulers, and his statesmen, the friends of the king were those who had the closest and the most intimate connection with him. Close quote. You know what? This is the same kind of access that Christ offers to you. You see where it says there, I've called you friends for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. He calls you friend. You have access to him in the morning and you have access to him in the evening. You have the right to come to him at any time during the day. You are able to share your heart with him and he shares his heart with you through his word. You are more than a servant. You are a friend. You are invited to be in his chambers. You are a part of his court. You are seated at his banqueting table. He chose you to be his friend. You are no longer an outcast. You are no longer an enemy. You are no longer a slave. In this passage, he wants you to know that he sees you as a friend. You say, Adam, what does it mean to be Christ's friend? Answer again, just in case you didn't get it. Be your final blank. A friend reveals to you the inner workings of their heart. Again, the end of verse 15, all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You know one of the best things I like about Christianity instead of any other cult? Cults are quiet, and they have secrets, and they don't disclose it all, because they know if they told you everything, they, how they started and what they believe, you would be scared to death, and you would run the other way, and be like, get away from these people, they're crazy, because they're hiding things, and they won't share it all with you till you get in. Then there's secret handshakes, secret high fives, secret things they eat, all this kind of stuff. You know what Jesus does? He's like, I'm gonna tell you everything right up front. I'm gonna reveal everything to you. Everything the Father has said to me, I'm gonna reveal it to you because you're my friend. You're no longer a servant. You can know exactly what the master is doing. A servant just does what they're told. A servant has very limited knowledge about what's going on in the heart of the master. Jesus on the other hand, reveals the mysteries of the kingdom to his friends. In Matthew thirteen ten, the disciples asked Jesus, why do you speak in parables? And in the next verse, Jesus says, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. You're not a believer, you're not a friend, if you're a believer, you're a friend, he's going to show it all to you. The friends of Jesus have insight into the mystery which has been kept secret from ages past. The term mystery in the New Testament refers to the hidden things of the past which are now revealed through Jesus. What kind of mystery are you talking about, Adam? Jesus reveals the mystery of Israel's hardening. Jesus reveals the mystery of the gospel. Jesus reveals the mystery of the rapture. Jesus reveals the mystery of God's will. Jesus reveals the mystery that the Jews and the Gentiles would be made into one new man. Jesus reveals the mystery of the union between Christ and his church. Jesus reveals the mystery of his own dwelling and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Jesus reveals the mystery of the Messiah, that he was God in the flesh. Jesus reveals the mystery of the faith. And Jesus reveals the mystery of godliness. Why wouldn't you want to be friends with this man? He's going to tell you everything. He reveals everything to you. Jesus said, I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. A friend hides nothing. A friend discloses everything. Jesus says, for all that I've heard from the Father, I've made known to you. Jesus reveals everything to his friends. Jesus took his friends up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus took his friends with him into the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus ate with his friends. He washed their feet. He listened to their questions. He taught them of the Father's love. He died for his friends. Jesus is a friend who loves at all times, Proverbs 17, 17. Jesus is a friend who sticks closer than a brother, Proverbs 18, 24. Jesus is a friend who gives faithful wounds, Proverbs 27, 6. Certainly, our great master in heaven will never forsake his friends. Poor and unworthy as we are, he will not cast us off, but he will stand by us and he will love us to the very end. David never forgot Jonathan, and the greater David will never forget you. David stuck by Jonathan, and the son of David will stick by you. David loved Jonathan, and David's Lord will always love you. If you're here today, and you don't know Christ, then you are not considered a friend, but an enemy of God. And the good news is that God extends his love to enemies of the cross and that through Christ's perfect life and through his death, he calls you to him at this very moment. He is to love the world and anyone in the world that would repent and believe in the gospel would be saved. And not only would you be saved, you become his friend and he shows everything to you and he sticks by you. You don't need celebrity status or a lot of money. You just need a broken and a humble heart. You need a friend today? Won't you come to this friend, the Lord Jesus Christ? Won't you come to him and open up your heart and your soul to confess all that you've ever done? And won't you come to him by faith this day that Jesus is the Son of God who died on a cross and was raised from the dead, that you can have new life? If you're a Christian today, then I would just ask you this question. Maybe you need to meditate a little bit more on the fact that he calls you friend. Sometimes we shy away from that a little bit because it somehow sounds like we're being trite with God. This is the word that Jesus uses. He says, I call you friend. Abraham believed and he was called a friend of God. When you believe, you're called a friend of God. You're a friend of Christ. He calls us friends. Do you hear me this morning? You're in Christ today. He no longer calls you a slave. He doesn't look at you as a servant, at least in this passage. He says, I've called you friend. Be encouraged by that this day. Be thankful that He sees you that way. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this reminder today that you call us friends. God, forgive us for the times that we don't meditate on that enough. We don't think about it enough. We don't let it impact us enough. And I pray that after a message like this, a passage like this, that Jesus is so clear with his disciples, and with every Christ follower, that I no longer call you servants, I call you friends, and I pray that would transform our thinking, and I pray that would bring us into an intimate relationship with you, and I pray it would be that very truth that would bring us into that hunger and desire to obey you, and to love you, and to keep your commandment, to love one another because you love us. You've called us friends. Help us to look at other people that you love. And that we would call them friends, which means that we wouldn't hate them, that we wouldn't neglect them, that we wouldn't avoid them, that we wouldn't diss them, but that we would love them. Help us to be a church who would know that we are friends of God if we're in Christ and that we're to be friendly with one another as brothers and sisters. Thank you for the love that Christ shows. Help us to walk in that love today, to follow Christ in his example and to love like we've never loved before because you have called us friends. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.